So you might hear coyotes outside at some point. Oh, sounds awesome. <laughs> this is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where we learn to skin a squirrel out of a 1978 copy of The Illustrated Joy of Cooking, and they sure make it look a whole lot easier than it is. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. So here we are at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, we've never made a podcast before, and the world is ending again. <laughs> and neither of us wants to make a go bag, so we might as well make a podcast instead. Do you think the world is ending, Nina? Um, I feel like the world ends kind of a lot for all kinds of different people at different times. Um, And I feel like... Yeah, we're in a climate crisis and things are going to change in a massive way, even if it's not like, you know, even if it's not any apocalypse that we've imagined before. I think that we're on the verge of a different kind of world. I think that's a great way of saying it. You know, this idea of the world changing and being on the the precipice of a shift is part of why we're starting this podcast with Butler's Parable of the Sower. It's really the great novel of apocalyptic paradigm shifts from the point of view of marginalized people, of black folks, queer folks, sex workers, farm laborers, and self-emancipated slaves. Yeah, with a few doctors and suburban white kids thrown in for good measure. Right. And fundamentally, it's a novel about getting prepared. The hero of the story, whose name is Lauren Olamina, is a black cis female teenager living in a walled community in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And while we're not going to talk about the book in detail in this episode, um, we should mention that she spends the first half of it prepping, just sort of getting herself ready for when disaster finally happens. Yeah. And she's got what she calls a positive obsession. She's obsessed with the idea that things are going to change and she needs to be ready when they do. And she makes a go bag, which I think is really kind of a symbol of prepper culture, right? Like, at least as much as a fully stocked bunker or, or something like that is. I mean, a go bag is kind of like a portable bunker in a way. It's all the supplies you absolutely need to survive, packed into a little portable container and ready to go at a moment's notice. Yeah. And I think for both of us, that association of go bags with prepper culture means that go bags are kind of like outside the realm of queer culture, I think, as both of us conceive it. I know. I mean, go bags for me belong to the just this whole idea of um, putting together all of the, these supplies and taking yourself away from society so that, you know, when the quote unquote masses um, just start rioting and fighting each other over food and water, um, you're kind of in a cushy situation because, you know, you were better than the average person and, and you looked ahead and knew, knew what was going to happen. Um, and now you're safe, you're better than everybody else, and you've got guns so that in case someone comes for your food, um, you can defend your your compound. And I still very much think of that, uh, that image um, when I think of the idea of a go bag. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it's really like it's connected to some of the same things that come out of like, you know, homophobic white supremacist patriarchy right like this idea of isolation of mastery of like being better and over others but even though I think that's really my association with it too there are queer preppers and there are marginalized preppers and black preppers and preppers of color and so I think one of the reasons we wanted to start with Parable of the Sower is to really challenge the idea um that 
preparing for the apocalypse and all of the things that are associated with apocalyptic shifts and changes are totally outside of queer culture and outside of anything that could possibly matter to us. Yeah. And so today we're on to part two of our conversation on Octavia Butler's 1993 novel, Parable of the Sower, where we're talking about queer prepping and positive obsession with activist and disaster preparedness expert Kalyaan Mendoza. So Kalyan is a person who I am so grateful to have had this chance to speak with and to meet. He's an activist by vocation, a self-described queer Filipinx, hard-of-hearing immigrant organizer, and he's been working for justice for 20-plus years from California to Standing Rock to the streets of New York City, um, where he's currently organizing Asians for Black Lives, and he helps to run Across Frontlines, an organization that partners with frontline communities to co-create trainings and resources, build holistic safety and security create media strategies, and do all kinds of anti-oppression work. You can find them at acrossfrontlines.org. Yep. And if he doesn't really sound very much like your average bunker-building prepper, that's because Kalyan comes to disaster preparedness from a totally different place. We asked him to speak with us after seeing two posts from him on Instagram that together really just basically kind of hit the sweet spot of exactly what we want to talk about on this show. One of them was Kalyan acting as a bike marshal as part of a protest, and he's wearing a DIY hot pink onesie made from a safety vest and short shorts. And the other was a detailed breakdown of the contents of his go bag. Yeah, so I've got to say to me, up to this point in my life, I've always thought of go bags as like way outside the purview of those of us who prefer to rock hot pants. (laughs) Dude, I'm very much drawn to the hot pants. But I mean, the challenge is to, uh, you know, also maybe find a way of being a little bit drawn to the go bag. And that's kind of the challenge we're setting ourselves in these two episodes on on parables to bring hot pants and go bags together in the queer imagination. I love it. So we should note that we're starting off um as i often do on the wrong foot and the plan for episodes going forward is to put out a monthly episode where we talk about whatever post-apocalyptic or dystopian or future book or show or video game or movie we're gonna be discussing in that round and then two weeks afterward we'll publish a piece of related content that's more about action and resources so for parable of the sower that's this interview with kalyan but i've got to say honestly the conversation we had with kalyan was such a deep influence on our conversation about parables that we didn't really think we should make you wait exactly The queer art of starting out on the wrong foot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And for me, there was so much that was starting out on the right foot in the conversation with Kalyan. So here we go. Back to a night in September where Nina's recording from a lake house surrounded by wild dogs that are actually probably pretty fluffy if you get to know them. So you might hear coyotes outside at some point. Oh, sounds awesome. <laughs> so back when we've had our first conversation, you let me and Nat know um, that you didn't really like the word prepper. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about why not and how you'd rather talk about it? Um, I guess what you would call disaster preparedness, maybe? Yeah, I really see, um, you know, there's been shows called like Doomsday Prepper and there's a certain kind of image that people come up with when they say prepper. And for me, it's really about being a protector or an organizer. And as an organizer, as a community organizer, 
my main function is to build relationships and support folks in the ways that they need um, and to make sure that people feel like they have the tools that they need to be able to organize for the world that they want. And I really um, am guided by that when it comes to disaster preparedness. Uh, the thing that I see a lot, especially in the States around uh, disaster preparedness is the hoarding of supplies or, you know, got to get all of my guns. And the only thing that has allowed our species as a collective to survive all of the trials that we have experienced from colonization to, um, you know, to uh, plagues is building community with one another. And that's, I think that is what is central to the way I approach disaster preparedness is, and we've seen this in the last um, nine nine months now, um, at least here in New York City, uh, the rise of mutual aid groups, people who probably would never have spoken to each other, going out to pick up medication for the elderly, setting up community fridges, finding ways to get PPE to those who are most affected. And being here in Jackson Heights, Queens, which was one of the hardest hit areas at the beginning of the pandemic, it was really scary. But to see the community care for each other in such intentional ways, that's what being prepared to me means. That's what being an organizer and a protector means, is we know that we can't rely on genocidal settler colonizer governments that don't care about the people we can only care for each other mm. because if there's anything i've learned is we truly keep us safe yeah from the first kind of realization i think that we were all going to have to stay inside and that so many of us were in danger seeing the response from you know really a broad swath of the different communities i belong to being well how can we take care of each other okay the theater artists are going to make masks and folks who are not immunocompromised are going to pick up groceries for those who are yeah i think that mm-hmm. is not the image of apocalypse that we get in media so much of the time it's something that nat and i have talked a little bit about how you know that like lonely solitary take care of yourself ethos Yeah, I mean, to me, what that brings to mind is just an idea of trying to get away from other people and self-sufficiency in that frame looks like isolation from community. And I very much associate the whole notion of a prepper with sort of like, you know, well, everybody else might have to be a roving mob, but I'm going to be safe because I had guns and I had food and you know, this sort of condescending attitude about like pre-having knowledge that other people didn't have or guessing right about the future or something like that. And yeah, I mean, like when I, when I think of that, I'm like, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather die in, in a crisis than live like that because I, I can't imagine just the idea of living so isolated away from a community of people is you know, I, I seriously feel like this just so, so scary of a reality to me. Mm. It's kind of amazing how much mutual aid has, yeah, how, how much, you know, the, the things that you're talking about are clarifying that there are other options. I feel like 
it's kind of wild that that didn't really occur to me before this time. Yeah, it's really interesting to kind of look at Black and Indigenous uh, women, femme, trans folks that have been doing a lot of work around healing justice, which in essence is the, you know, building resiliency and survival strategies for the collective well-being of people. A lot of times I think about the fact that care is so devalued by a white supremacist, patriarchal, colonizer society that we're seeing now that that is the only thing that we can rely on, that we are essentially good people. And the whole, um, you know, Lord of the Flies uh, kind of myth is a, it's a, it's a very white cis male thing. And interesting to note, the whole story about Lord of the Flies around survival was based on a group of Tongan boys at the time. They, you know, they were able to care for each other, sustain themselves and survive for, I believe it was years. So I really want to disrupt that, like y'all said, the lone wolf um, narrative. It's like, we, we can't survive. And wolves aren't ever alone. They're pack animals, you know, like that's, it's just, it's just funny how white supremacy and colonization tries to infect us with this sense of individualistic you know, importance over community. Look, in some sense, I feel like what you're talking about is to just say the idea of preparing or being ready or whatever sense of that includes things like making a go bag is just something that falls in mutual within the realm of what you call mutual aid and community organizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a term that Native organizers at Standing Rock um, really used to replace protester. They call themselves protectors. And it's a, it's a guiding principle for how folks have been able to support and care for their communities in the ways that they need in the face of genocide, in the face of plague. So I like to think of the folks who are looking out for the community, one another, like folks that are in mutual aid, as protectors because that's what we're doing. We're not just protecting ourselves from COVID, but we're also protecting ourselves from a government that doesn't care about us, that is outrightly lying to us and has lied to us about this um, horrible pandemic. So it's a term that comes from a place of deep love and connection and an understanding that we are interconnected. And if we don't, move through the world together, then we won't move through the world at all. I love that. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of um, something that I read in an essay by Kucha Risling Baldi, who is a professor and an indigenous author. And she writes about what watching the walking dead feels like to her um, Mm. and kind of how she identifies with that show as a person who comes from generations of people who survived and didn't survive genocide. Mm -hmm. And thinking about looking to indigenous activists and leaders um, as communities that have been surviving genocide and and plague, as you're saying, makes so much sense to me without turning into roving mobs of Mm -hmm. vicious individualists. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously this, conversation is reminding me so much of our 
reading that we were we were doing for this episode, which was Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to another friend about this. You know, I said, like, have you read those books? And he was like, a lot of people have advised me not to read them right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that's because of how much they reflect exactly what's going on right now. And it's really scary to see it written in a book in the 90s and then look at what's playing out for us today and be like, oh my God, this isn't just chaos. You know, in some ways it feels like, okay, you know, if we'd, if we'd looked at history, perhaps we could see some of this this coming. And that aspect of it is just really sobering to read in, in a novel from the 90s. And the good side to it is like so much of what you're talking about, Kalyan, is reflected in the sort of the the attitude of the the main character Lauren Olamina who has this positive obsession that's her words around that kind of idea of protectorship and bringing people together she's this character who has this incredible vision about what her purpose is in the world and it is to accomplish much of that same type of work of like what you were saying um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about it because it reminds me so much of the way it's written in that book. Like this notion of having this almost kind of like a calling or like a really clear vision of what it is that you're doing and why it's so important. Mm. I think last time we, we talked, you actually said you were a nerd of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like I, I really like tuned in with that because I in various aspects of my life identify as a nerd and I I kind of wanted to like ask you to talk a little bit about that like was there a, a catalyzing moment or is it something that's always been with you in a way yeah I mean like I'm a nerd of many things everything from Star Trek to Avatar to constructed languages like Navi and I'll just like bust out with some Navi at a party, like favor <laughs> because it's fun. But being like a safety nerd, like I think it came out of being uh, growing up in California. I was like, what, 11 years old during the Loma Prieta earthquake. And I remember, I distinctly remember the, what it was like and like how our community, we lived in like a little apartment complex. Um, it was really fun for the kids. Like all the parents came out with their barbecue grills and we all just like cooked for one another. It was kind of in that instance where I realized that one way that I could contribute was to learn more about, you know, what is safety and security, especially from a holistic lens, right? How do we keep our communities physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, digitally safe and secure? And it has really trickled into my work, my activist work, either uh, working with Students for a Free Tibet back in the late 90s into the early 2000s with the Beijing 2008 Olympics. It was all about um, preparing and keeping people safe, building frameworks that allowed folks to be able to understand what informed consent means when engaging in an action, giving people the tools that they need to keep themselves safe and to be able to create adaptive strategies in the face of state repression. So. From that, I've been able to bring my safety nerd glasses or goggles, if you will, into, you know, spaces like Ferguson, Standing Rock, um, multiple 
movements around the world from uh, Taiwan to Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand, and across Turtle Island. Um, I think for me, being a little kid watching kind of what I thought was going to be the end of the world during the earthquake, but seeing everyone care for each other, that just really stuck with me. Mm. It sounds like also there's a way in which that kind of danger was also associated with care for you and, and like the potential for that connection and, and for beautiful, fun, pleasurable times as part of the response to, to disaster. Yeah, totally. I mean, just we're often fed that narrative that, you know, human beings are trash or that we're the virus Mm -hmm. of the world. Um, But growing up in communities of color that have had very little resources. Growing up as an immigrant here on stolen land, like we had to learn that caring for each other meant we could all survive together. So yeah, just seeing those different trauma points growing up um, and rather than turning that um, just inwards, I wanted to manifest that into energy protecting the community um, wherever I was. That's really beautiful. It was making me think a little bit of um, an incident in my dad's life that's been told many times in my family. My dad was, I think, at church Mm. and there was a tornado and apparently the windows like blew in, like the glass just shattered and it was really terrifying, like one of these situations where you can see the tornado and People are like, we're probably going to die. And that narrative, I think, for my dad has always very much been, I have to make sure that Mm. something like that never happens again. And to me, that's just a very different way of seeing a moment of crisis, which was not through the lens of having a communal response to it, but more just through a lens of Mm. control. And I see that control as being the thing that motivates that kind of individualist prepper attitude, you know, and not to, you know, condemn my father as one of those crazy, like lone wolf types that we were sort of saying we didn't like that, that lens. But I think that there is a sense where it's like, Mm. fear is the enemy, and we have to fight the enemy. Mm. What you're saying is, very much like giving me this like idea that that's not the only way that you could see a moment of fear. Totally. I mean, I invite folks to really think about fear as a teacher, right? I think all of the, because fear teaches us how to be safe, how to um, survive. Uh, It's up to us to be able to take that lesson and to make it into something that is for the betterment of others. It takes time, but I think we're seeing that collective change happening right now. How do these kind of ideas of how to respond to negative emotions and consent that you've talked about come into the work that you do um, in preparing activists? Yeah, we really talk about, we really center healing justice in the work. And it's important for me that we recognize Black and Indigenous feminist um, thinkers when engaging in community protection work, because essentially that's what activists are, right? It's folks that care so much about the world that they're willing to put their lives out on the lines in the streets. That's exactly what's been happening in the last over 100 days 
since the uh, murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many other black folks is that people want to stop the state sanctioned murders of black folks, but also want to fight for a world where this isn't even ever possible. Mm -hmm. So the trainings that I do are everything from just basic 101 protest safety um, you know, here's the stuff to bring, here are the things to keep in mind, um, here's ways to prepare yourself before going in, make sure you have a first aid kit, here's how to deal with tear gas, um, to more 301 trainings, which is like about setting up a tactical safety and security base of operations. Um, if you need to be deployed in an area, either as a street medic or, you know, safety marshal, here are the steps that you need to take all the way to how to deal with an active shooter scenario to identifying commonly used munitions by the state against activists. So the nonviolent direct action work I do is very much centered in healing justice and keeping activists and protectors safe as they um, advocate and fight for a just and better world. There's so much urgency right now around transferring the skills that you're talking about in this particular moment. What are the preparedness skills that you think activists really need right now? Yeah, we usually start folks off with um, building their situational awareness. We go through the OODA loop of, you know, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act, and really train folks on understanding their uh, sympathetic nervous system response to stressful situations, whether that's during a post-apocalyptic event or being at a protest where the cops um, decide to inflict violence on nonviolent protesters. These are all skills that people will need to use once they go into a state of um, shock and will need like a cognitive shortcut to fall back on. These are all skills that are very much uh, applicable to daily life now, unfortunately. So there's situational awareness, building a threat and risk assessment or analysis where we um, talk about what a threat is. I like to think about it in terms of, um, you know, storm clouds looming on the horizon. What we do is really guide folks through a process of identifying what the likely threats are in a protest or really any situation and to know that their vulnerabilities are both um, internal and it could be community-wide. So what are the capacities or strengths or resources that they need in order to strengthen themselves, to lessen, or just to completely get rid of the risks to the community? And really about um, focusing on consent. What does consent mean uh, within the safety space? When I do trainings on dealing with tear gas or pepper spray, The first thing we do is to tell people you need to get the consent of the person that was affected. Um, It's not just a, you know, um, a theoretical thing. It's very much about praxis on the streets. If someone gets tear gas, like in Ferguson, uh, um, a journalist got tear gas in front of me. And the first thing I did was like, do you need support? Um, And they they were like crying and screaming. They were like, yes, yes, yes. And uh, as they consented to that, I moved them through each of the steps of how I was going to be supporting them. I'm going to help you get on the ground. I'm going to hold your head while you lay down. Um, I am now going to be putting uh, a mix of water and uh, liquid antacid in your eyes to decontaminate you, so on and so forth. 
there's these very basic things that we do in organizing that translates mm. very well into disaster preparedness. Because with organizing, it's about building power with the collective. It's about building leadership from the bottom up. And that's what we should also be doing within the disaster preparedness world is getting everyone um, supported and trained to be able to uh, not just survive, but also to thrive in the face of state, non-state actor violence, or um, this pandemic. So those are that's just like a really quick and dirty version of the 50 plus trainings that I've been doing since May. So yeah. Yeah, I remember doing first aid training. The thing they said was that you had to ask people for mm. consent before doing anything. Somehow, like that was a, the one of the most meaningful aspects of that training to me because it was the one moment when the total anxiety I had in my mind about what would I do if somebody had something happen to them during one of my classes like was alleviated because like that changed the mindset for me from like if somebody collapsed in a class it's a test of my skills which was totally anxiety provoking but like the idea of asking a person for their consent for me to touch them and try to help them mm. like to me that's like this isn't a test of skills mm. this isn't a performance this is about that person mm. in this moment. That makes so much sense. And that reminds me of like um, listening to both of you talk. I'm thinking about like mm. like ER, you know, and these doctor shows where it's like all about this like surgeon standing over like a supine silent body, you know, yelling stat. <laughs> like, it's it's mm. it's a framing of like the power to save as like a power over and thinking about like the person you know, with, with tear gas in their eyes and throat and nose, it's like there, there's something there about like, there's no moment that's too crazy to get consent. Because if I was going to think like, when would you like, when would you be like, I'm just going to go ahead? Mm. You know, it might be when someone is like screaming and thrashing on the ground and can't breathe. But the idea that there is no moment when you can't get consent is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's making me think of this, one time I, I remember when I was in grad school, I was in a coffee shop and I saw a woman kind of wavering back and forth in this way. And I, I tend to be pretty tuned into people's mannerisms and I instantly read it that there was something wrong with her. And she actually had like a moment where she lost consciousness and she she sort of ran into a wall and hit her head on the wall and fell over. Oh. And it was like one of those moments where you realize how people stand on the sidelines of that because of how anxious they are about it. And they're anxious about what to do. And it was sometime within the realm that I had done that first aid training. And I remember being like, I have a way of helping her because I can start the way the helping by asking her consent. Mm. And it was just, I, I've actually been in the other mindset in different situations where I'm like, oh my God, I can't do anything. I don't know what to do. I can't, you know, I'm going to fail yeah. because I'm not going to do the right skills or I'm not going to know the right approach to this situation. And so I actually was sort of like, oh, like, because I, I have this like framework for interacting with her, 
I, I know what to start with. And the, then the, the question and answer of what to do next will come from that point of contact mm-hmm. with her. And it was interesting, actually, because I, I said, you know, can I touch you? She was unconscious. And so I then had to reason about what to do without her being like, mm-hmm. go ahead. But it was like me thinking through it from a perspective of like, what consent can I get from her? How can I start to interact with the situation as like a dialogue between mm-hmm. me and her? You know, I did become the person who helped her find her way back to her office and call her husband. And I felt it was one of the best experiences I've had of something so scary mm. like that. Ooh. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just such an integral part of building emotional safety and security. You know, if you're de-escalating a situation, when you ask someone who you are in relationship with and they're getting aggravated or getting traumatized, what can I do to support you right now? it moves them out of a place of being hyper aroused and helps bring them back to their window of tolerance where they're cool, calm, collected, and connected and can actually think through, okay, I need to get out of this situation, right? And consent, especially when we're out in the streets, is about respecting people's body autonomy and their agency to be able to define what they need. Because if, you know, someone might be like, I need you to get my medication in my bag, right? And by getting them back to a place of uh, regulation, they're able to, um, to vocalize that and help to really de-escalate what could be a very stressful and traumatic situation. So, yeah. 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 Well, Kalia, and you've touched on already a, a little bit about being a Californian and being an immigrant in some of the ways that they've influenced your work as a preparedness expert. Can you talk a little bit about some of your other identities um, and how they've intersected with with this work? Yeah, totally. I identify as queer, Filipino, hard of hearing, and being a part of those different communities has really shown me that when we're able to define what we need as a community to be able to um, survive and thrive, really, Um, that's kind of what has guided me um, when it comes to disaster preparedness. If we look at the disability justice community, there are disabled organizers that have been doing the work of supporting folks in last year's wildfires. You know, folks like Mia Mingus, Mm. uh, Stacey Milburn, Park, Alice Wong. These are all folks that have talked about building support pods and ways that we can share resources with one another. Being in these different communities, learning from folks that have been doing the work um, has only helped me be able to share the information and knowledge. And being queer, especially growing up during a time when, you know, Matthew Shepard was murdered, I had to always like look over my shoulder. Um, I had to always practice situational awareness. I didn't know that's what it was called. But, you know, for folks who are survivors, for folks who have live through assault or live in a climate of fear, we come up with our own survival and resiliency strategies and tactics that help us to get through that. And for me, it's about getting people access to these resources, these, um, these trainings, um, and this knowledge to be able to protect themselves and feel like they have the emotional safety, fight for the world that they want. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. Actually, that that makes me wonder whether you think about disaster preparedness in in like relation to like a future. Can you please define future for me? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess I wondered. Are you are you thinking about like a community off the grid, or is it kind of very much in the here and now? Because that that's kind of part of the like prep like preparation fantasy so much of the time. Mm-hmm. For me, it's just really about being in the here and now um, and being completely present. But I will not lie. I have thought about like, what would it be to have like all the people I cared about who I knew, you know, cared about the world if we just like had our own, you know, space where we could grow our own food and have our own microeconomy and we can just like care about each other in those ways. And like that's it's that's it's a beautiful um, uh, daydream. But I know that we're going to be existing in a world that is not going to have people with those same values. So what does it mean to um, uh, to prepare folks for um, the chaos that's coming? Because quite frankly, as we've been seeing, there's a constant uptick in white supremacist violence. Yeah. Um, there is, you know, we are in a climate catastrophe right now. Mm. Yeah. So... One thing I've learned in Tibetan Buddhism is like the the goal of the practitioners not to go disappear into the mountains is to be completely present in the world that they're in and to do some good and to leave the world a little bit better than when they came in. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's really about um, showing folks the possibility of um, what safety and um, security looks like from a healing justice and holistic lens um, where everyone feels like they can build a world where they don't have to look over their shoulder, where they don't have to fear the fascist police state coming in, where they don't have to fear about a government that wants to get their money and see them dead. So yeah, I think for me, the future is always what's tomorrow. And the only way that it can... Um, uh, do my little part is to work with folks on making today a little bit better. Yeah, love that. Nice. Well, we're almost at time. Um, so I want to make sure that folks know where they can reach you if they are interested in setting up one of your disaster preparedness courses. Yeah, thank you so much. So folks can go to our website. It's acrossfrontlines.org um, or please feel free to reach out to me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Kala Mendoza. That's K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A. On um, Instagram, as you've seen, like I like to post a lot of informative um, content around disaster preparedness and ways that I navigate it. Um, and it's always an invitation. It's never like, this is what you need to do. Um, Cause that's just um, some subtler colonial nonsense. Um, <laughs> And if, um, yeah, if folks have any questions, they can reach me directly at um, Kala at acrossfrontlines.org. Awesome. I saw a post of yours on Instagram about your go bag. And Nat and I were wondering if we were to put together go bags, what is like, what would you think we should put in them that nobody else is going to tell us to put in? Mm. Something portable that keeps you safe emotionally. Mm. I have my mala or uh, rosary 
I have um, Adrian Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy. Um, I think that's one thing that folks might forget is that if we ever have to use a go bag, it's important to be able to ground ourselves and have a connection to that which keeps us, makes us feel safe and secure. Um, so that could really be whatever folks have, you know, whether it's a picture of their family, um, whether it's a stuffed animal or even, a, even like a journal. Because when I talk about safety and security, it's not just a physical, it's also the emotional, mental, and spiritual safety and security. Because that's really the only way that we're able to move past um, the trauma. We recognize the trauma, but we move past the trauma and towards the healing. Thank you so much, Diane. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fine des Ericotes by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworlds podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. If you're a queer person making apocalyptic and dystopian media, and you have something you'd like us to read, watch, play, or listen to, or you just have a great idea for a topic we should cover on the show, get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts.